We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We, we saw a thing and talked about it. This week, the guys talk about guess who's coming to dinner and guess who. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. So, man, uh, we're not quite sure how to do this episode. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling with this one. And uh, I asked you for a whole other day before recording because I really wanted to sit with this one for, for a little bit. And I say sit with this one because in my mind, we watched one movie that was very affecting and very important. And we watched another movie that was very glib because... I had watched the 60s version before watching the remake with Ashton Kutcher. I couldn't help but feel like the glib approach the remake took really took the teeth out of the thing. I hated that they swapped races. I think that it was a much more effective story told with a white woman bringing home a black man. I thought that that was a smart choice because... I think any time a man is in a position of authority over a woman or or a man is is coming into a situation, regardless of, of race or anything else, I think that Me Too proved a lot to us about our gender's uh, ability to bring badness to a situation. And so to to have that added on top of a race discussion for the original, I think made it very effective. It would be any father's want to make sure that his daughter is safe inside of a relationship with any man, regardless of anything else. It was just so interesting the way that they chose to layer Sidney Poitier's character. Not only was he a man, not only was he a black man, he was an incredibly successful man. Somebody who had a lot of status, and it didn't matter. Like, it just... It, it wholly didn't matter because of the color of his skin. And I just, God, dude, like, I had such a hard time watching this movie because I wish I was farther along in my education process about white privilege. I'm reading this amazing book called White Privilege and Me right now. I'm only about a third of the way through it. And, like, I just feel like I'm having my world rocked on a regular basis, which is, like, a horrible thing to feel like my world is being rocked by just things that are so normal for other people, just regular experiences. You and I talked a lot about the Me Too movement when that was a thing that was regularly in the news, how eye-opening that was to the daily experiences of just being a woman in the world. And this Black Lives Matter movement has been so eye-opening in a very similar way because it's... It's making me feel like a bad friend. It's making me feel like I've been, I'm so unaware of how the world really works. And I'm struggling to get on board with my own white privilege of it making me feel crappy. <laughs> because that's so wholly inappropriate and so wholly ineffective for driving change with this whole thing. And I feel like that's very important to me. I want to be an effective advocate. I want to be somebody who pays attention to these things. I want it to stop with me. I don't want the next generation to continue with some of this, like just institutionalized racism and floundering inside of that. I'm not used to feeling that powerless. <laughs> and boy, does that ever speak to my white male privilege. I wish that the things that were happening in the world and in the news right now, I, I wish that I was more prepared for them. I wish that I had more perspective. I wish that I had more knowledge because 
I want to be more effective. And now I'm playing catch up and it's good. I feel good about playing catch up because it's so necessary. And I think that a lot of people are probably in very similar positions of feeling this way. I feel very paralyzed in knowing how to talk about this movie in an effective way because I think it's such an important movie. And I think it's such an important story. And I think it's a very effective microcosm of what people actually go through in their day-to-day lives and how um, family influences can take something that is so pure and amazing, like finding somebody to love and how rare that is in the world, and then adding all sorts of extra social pressures and, and racism on top of that really took away from this very amazing, innocent thing that the movie started with. <sighs> The, the whole beginning of the movie is just this couple enjoying each other's company as they walk through the airport with this beautiful song playing, a very on-the-nose song playing, but it's just showing this beautiful innocence to their relationship and how in love they are, and then to watch people who love them tear that apart in such a short period of time was like a whole other layer of sadness to the thing. I'm, I'm like ranting now, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, you look at 1967 when this film came out, and uh, there was a ruling that the U.S. Supreme Court rules that prohibiting interracial marriage is un- unconstitutional, okay? So this is the first time that white audiences are seeing a black and white person on screen for the most part in a real loving embrace and a real loving relationship. For me, watching this film, I found it was directed exactly at you, Chris, who is the person that is coming to terms with white privilege and that it's not the same world for people of color. And and, uh, for all the reasons you just stated, I believe that this film is by a white director directed at white audiences. Don't misunderstand me. This is an important thing to have. I think it's a very important thing for white people at this moment in time, at this pinnacle of civil rights where like Martin Luther King delivered his Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967. You know, this is when Thurgood Marshall is sworn in as the first African-American justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. This is a huge moment in the world and the importance of this film cannot be understated. With that said, it's a very strange thing that an incredibly likable black character who knows exactly what he wants from life puts the remainder of his life in a older white person's hands. I find that amazing And I find it shocking as well, because I think in 1967, this film had all of the teeth. I know it was a hit with white audiences. And looking back from 2020 eyes, in my opinion, there is so much interesting white privilege. I don't know how I feel about Spencer Tracy giving this enormous monologue at the end of the film. Without letting Sydney or his parents say anything, I don't know if I like that. There was also a weird misogyny to that, too, because it was really the moms who had the thing figured out quickly. Very quickly, yes. And it took a while for the dads to get on board. And so to have him not only have that final 
monologue where he's, you know, mansplaining the things that the women already had a good handle on, but he's also white privileging his way to having this epiphany. Um, I had a real problem with that, too, until I read that this was Spencer Tracy's last movie and he was super sick when he was filming it uh, and he died 17 days after they finished filming it. Wow. And then I started to understand that he's Hollywood royalty. Yeah. He, he would have been one of the marquee names on this movie. And so it makes sense that he would be given that monologue in a Hollywood context. I still had problems with it from a narrative of the movie standpoint. Like you're saying, this this movie is made for white audiences to, you know, start breaking in that white privilege and the and the racism angle. It felt very monologue heavy at points. It felt like that was kind of a means to an end to getting the thesis statement of the essay of this film across. It also is coming at an audience from a place of civility. You have watched protests and riots. You've seen Selma at this point where where men and women are, are getting destroyed by police and militia. The Vietnam War is happening and you bring this film into people's lives through civility and just conversation. There's no violent acts. There's no aggressive anything really in the film. The most aggressive thing in the film is a is a fender bender, which only again shows this incredible white privilege that people have. Not to give much credit to Guess Who, because I feel like the remake wants so badly to be Meet the Parents that it does not have anything to say about race relations, except that it's so much later and we still have a movie called Guess Who? And I have to say that at least Zoe Saldana had input, had some grit to her. I I had a really hard time with Joanna not understanding what would happen when she brings home John, not knowing that this ultimatum, that this speedy thing is, is regardless, I think of race at that point, the speed in which they get engaged and the speed at which they want to get married, I think would definitely throw off any parent, regardless of race. However, you add in the element of race, And you don't, and neither one of them decided to tell their folks that this has happened and they give them such a small window. I feel a little bit like that's unfair. And maybe in a world that is perfect and utopian, it should be just fine to do that. But what we're learning in 2020 is that black people do not live in the same world as white people. And there needs to be that clear thought and understanding in order to get past the black and white, I believe. You have to see race. You have to say, the person I love, you need to understand, he is black, but I love him. I know we will run into problems, but you have to be okay with it. And you have to give a little bit of time to that, I think, especially in 1967. And is that fair? No, but we don't live in a fair world. I don't think it's racist to say seeing color is not racist. It's understanding that other 
people, people of color, have a different world than people like you and I, Chris, that walk through life, yes, with this white privilege. And I don't think that it's wrong to say that. In fact, I think it would make things easier to acknowledge it. The thing that you keep saying that keeps like rolling around in my head as we're talking here is in the 1960s. And I am shocked and disturbed at how completely relevant that story is today, 60 years later, like essentially 60 years later. And I don't feel like if that movie was re-released now, it couldn't be a modern take on what is happening in our world. That really makes me feel like the propaganda we've been told over the years about how race relations have gotten better has just been kind of a lie. Sections of our population have just kind of been looked past in order for our white privilege to say things like, oh, no, it's gotten better. Like, it's fine now. And and it's just not true. And we've seen a few different movies where we've talked about, wow, what a relevant topic today. But I haven't seen a movie for this podcast where I felt like the topic is more relevant or more timely than this one happens to be for where our world is currently. I thought about Get Out a lot while watching this film. Thank you. I wrote a note saying, I wonder if Get Out was inspired by this movie. And I looked into it a little bit and there were definitely reasons to do it that way. Get Out in that fashion. And I feel like now it's not that different if a woman was bringing home a black suitor, a white woman in a black suitor. I don't think it would be that different. I think there would be more on top of the surface of making sure that you appear really, 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 really okay while not addressing the things that Sidney Poitier's film addresses sometimes neatly and sometimes not so neatly. And I, and I think if there's anything interesting at all about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, it's how difficult it is for some people to look past. For example, you have the priest, and guess who's coming to dinner, who has performed these ceremonies. He's followed up with people. He understands that a lot of interracial marriages succeed where others fail. He is not the kind of person who worries about it at all. But he also knows that his friend is. And he, in ways, almost relishes the idea that He'll be able to teach his friend a lesson about this when he inevitably has a collapse of character due to the fact that his son-in-law will be black. But then you look at a movie like Get Out and there's just, you know, microaggressions. Things like my man that you probably wouldn't say if the man wasn't black. I would have voted for Barack Obama again. You wouldn't say that if, your white friend was there. You know, it's acting differently because of the color of somebody's skin. And I think Get Out is probably the closest we're going to get to a film like this. Or maybe Beatrice at Dinner, which I know you haven't seen, Chris, and I'm probably like throwing names of stuff. Uh, That's a film where Selma Hayek goes to a, a dinner party and John Lithgow is at the dinner party and he is a very Trump s character and Selma Hayek is... Salma Hayek, and she is belittled, and she's called the help at one point, and she's invited to this dinner. So it 
you know, and that is a film that actually takes place today. You know, sometimes we forget that other people of color also struggle to be around white people because white people, we're awful people. Like we're not all awful, but racism is a white person problem that affects people of color. I think that some of this racism and maybe a lot of this racism is so ingrained and institutionalized that there's a blissful unawareness. And so when your average person walks through life going, I'm not racist and feels very good about themselves for that, there are things that happen during the day that are so baked into just being a human being in the world that you have no awareness of them. Things that you take for granted in your day. I was made very aware uh, a couple nights ago. I went for a very long walk at midnight. And halfway through my very long walk at midnight, I realized that I have a privilege to be able to do that because it's not something my sister would do in the exact same neighborhood because she's not a man. And so there's like some institutionalized privilege that doesn't even register for me. And I'm sure that that's the experience for lots of people. The awareness of it is so important, like pulling the veil back, having difficult conversations, being willing to open your mouth and say things and be told that you're wrong and go, right, okay, I am wrong. And I see that now and and have opportunities for learning and growth. I mean, that's something that our social media world is not overly adept at right now. You know, cancel culture is very good at saying, well, look, it doesn't matter if you've learned from your mistakes, you're done now forever. And I think learning from mistakes is incredibly important. It's a it's a hugely important part of human nature. And never more so than now when we are fighting for people to have the right to just be people without having to feel like they're less than or go through their lives having to have extra barriers of protection to just make sure that their day-to-day life is okay. I think one of my favorite scenes in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, what you have to remember, if you haven't seen the film or maybe if it's been a while is that this family, this white family, are very liberal. They own an art gallery. He is the editor of a a major San Francisco paper in which he is sided with civil rights and and he wants civil rights to go forward. And this, this film is very much a, okay, you can talk the talk. Let's see you walk the walk. And there is a scene in the film where the white parents, which is, is so strange to be saying, the white parents, the black parents, but the, I, the white parents go for a drive. These older gentlemen and his wife end up at an ice cream shop. Somebody comes to your door, very quaint, very 60s, and he gets some ice cream. And he's just had a lovely experience, and he backs up his car, and he hits a man in his car. Now, that man also happens to be black. He comes out and all he's trying to do is shut down the man for feeling the way he feels because his car was totaled. He gives him some money. And at that point, it's not enough. The tensions are high. Car accidents are stressful. And this man yells something to him, discriminating him for his age, telling him that there should be a law. You shouldn't be allowed behind your car. Old man. And he gets in his car and he grumbles and he goes off and he's just been discriminated against. And the first thing he says, 12% 
of this city is African-American and I run into two in the same day. That is shocking and to me was one of the best parts of the film because your anger and your white privilege and the way you are all of a sudden brought this to the surface that you didn't even know existed in you. So sort of what you just said about this is something that's ingrained in every person. He's not an inherently racist person. He loves his black maid, calls her a part of the family, which was another very interesting part of this film because, of course, she sees another black person and instead of embracing another black person coming into the home, she is suspicious. She doesn't want him hurting the family. She's very protective of the girl that she helped raise, which is also very, very telling of where all of everybody's biases are. I initially had a real problem with um, her character because my immediate thought went to she's playing this role that needs to have like an internal racist bias towards another black man. And then I realized that it was just another proof of some of the inherent racial biases that are built into society that, you know, she had bought into her quote unquote place in the world and didn't believe that there was going to be more than that for her and that it was so ingrained in her experience and maybe her parents experience that this is just the way the world works. And so then it added this whole other layer to the movie to me of of just how institutional some of this racism is. After thinking about it for a bit, I realized that that was like a very powerful scene in the movie. It kept adding layers, which I really appreciated afterwards because it allows for a much deeper conversation when you start adding layers like that. And and nobody worry about Isabel Sanford. She went on to have an incredible career, right. just an amazing <laughs> career. She was in the Jeffersons. She went on to uh, star in TV. She was on the Carol Burnett show. Like, she's amazing. <laughs> and it went on to have a fantastic career. Um, in fact, this is a stacked cast of incredible actors. All the acting was really strong. I especially loved the scene where Catherine Hepburn is ushering one of her employees out of the house. Why don't you cut yourself a check for five grand and then pack your shit and get out? I don't want to see you again. And I loved that scene because it was a very quick and concise cut of here's where the line is and you're crossing it and we're not okay with it. And it was shocking. It was super shocking and it was super fast. And then for her to walk back in and for her daughter to be like, I don't know about that bitch, man. (laughs) 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 She really like brought some weird tension and heat into this thing that, that I don't think is appropriate. Like, is that really a person you want in your workplace? And for the mom to be like, well, you're a bit of a hothead. So, you know, (laughs) I wouldn't worry about it. Right. And you get that from your father. Exactly. And, and so, So she didn't come back in bragging about, you know, hey, look at this like thing that I did to protect you. And um, she made that quick mom decision of, nope, this is going to be a part of our lives now. And uh, and I'm going to draw that line in the sand hard and fast. It was such a real moment of her accepting that this is what her daughter wants for her life. She's found somebody to love and that that's going to come with some costs and that she was willing to pay them without thought or hesitation. And I thought that that really deepened her character and showed us a level of love for for her family that we hadn't quite seen up until that point. And there's a lot of recognition that they raised their daughter a certain way. 
even though they raised their daughter a certain way, this idea never even popped into their head that their daughter would bring home somebody of another race. That that wasn't something that even came into their head. And that's another little little systematic you're you're growing up and your brain thinks that way. Don't don't you think that was another like really interesting like parental moment? I thought there was a few of those that littered this movie where where you're getting the heart of a parent, which is I just want what's best for for my kids, whatever that looks like. And so the heart of them was always, well, I don't want her to go through life having pain. But their want for her is also for her to have a better world than they had. And I think that that's any good parents want for their children is to leave the world better than they found it or to instill values into their children that are important for making a better world in the future. And so I think that they really wanted this idea idealistic look for her and they brought her up to think about the world in in some very specific ways it was so telling that they were struggling with some of those same lessons right it's like well we want you to do that but this is really hard for me <laughs> and boy if that isn't just the human condition wrapped up right <laughs> well and it's it's an incredibly interesting uh dynamic between Sidney Poitier and his father yes because there's an incredible scene where he says, Dad, you see yourself as a black man. I see myself as a man. I don't know if that's the right thing to say or if it's just idealist for a new world. But I did enjoy him saying, you got to get off my back. Your whole generation has to get off our back so that we can keep moving this forward into a new world. That's such a sins of the father following the son, right? And that's that's like that's biblical even. Exactly. Like. I I believed wholeheartedly in that in that moment and in that scene and I loved that scene because in that scene the father is saying you're going to have such hardships, you're going to have problems. How how dare you, you know, after everything I've done for you, which did not seem like the way you should be talking to your your son about falling in love and the, and then for for John to say I don't owe you anything you did everything you were supposed to do you were supposed to give me all that and if I have another son I'm going to do the same for him there's this interesting age difference but there's also an interesting backstory where John's wife and child died in a train accident so he's much older he's much wiser and that is Kind of, to me, why he would go into that room. He's already hurt every level of hurt before. To go into that room and say, I've fallen in love with your daughter. If it's a problem, I won't marry her. Because on top of that, he's got the guilt and and all of the stuff he must have gone through when his wife and child died. But also, I think that's a very quick, shortcut way to prove um, his love for their daughter of, listen, like, you and you and I want what's best for her. And if we can't get on the same page about this is what's best for her, then I'll walk away. And this is the problem that I have with Guess Who. The real issue of Guess Who is that you have this man who is very successful, who is incredibly poised in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And Sidney Poitier is, I can only imagine the son-in-law you want if you have a daughter. And then you get Ashton Kusher, who, yes, has a very successful job, which he's just quit because his 
boss was racist, very nervous to meet the family. And when he does, every single moment of it, he bungles. He is a part of the problem. Not because he is white, because he is a part of the problem. (laughs) Yeah, he just doesn't put his best foot forward. He is lying about NASCAR. He is not doing, like, the reason it's not going well is because your confidence is gone. You are not a Sidney Poitier at all. Now, I'm not saying the guest who really wants to be the 67 guest who's coming to dinner. It's also, and this is, I'm going to ask you this. Kevin Rodney Sullivan is the director. He's a black man. I don't know if this is necessarily geared towards white audiences. It seemed to me that it was a studio cashing in on what would have been a trend with Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers and Father of the Bride and any of these other stories that we can just pull out of the air at random that follow a very similar blueprint. Seemed a lot like... You, well, well, we can make a flipper movie because Free Willy's a thing. Pixar's making a bug's life, so let's make ants, right? Like, it just, it seemed to me like a, like just a response to, well, this seems to be like kind of a thing that's popular, and here's a different take on it. I think I would have enjoyed Guess Who a lot more, just as like a silly romantic comedy, if it didn't have some sort of connection to the original in the 60s. It's not a 35-year-old update to a serious conversation. It's just not. Having him sit at the table and not only be asked to tell black jokes, but to go through with it was so ridiculous and uncomfortable. I could not believe that that was a thing that was in this film. After watching a film like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I saw that he loved her and all that romantic nonsense for the romantic comedy. I don't know if she deserved him or if he deserved her, I should say. I I don't know what to say about Guess Who because it's not really something that deserves our conversation. As you can see already, we've talked about the 67 Guess Who's Coming to Dinner a hell of a lot more than even looking at the the 2005 quote-unquote remake because it's not really the same thing. It's got goofy vignettes of the radio singing Ebony and Ivory and making them uncomfortable when it it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I think we're discounting it a lot because of how we're contrasting these two movies because they're just not even close to being even trying to accomplish the same things. That's right. This is this is not really a remake. No, it's not. It's not even a spiritual successor. It's it's its own kind of unique thing. I almost would say the remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is Get Out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's closer. And it does. It tries to do something new with a very similar story. And it has a message that is not what Guess Who's message is, because Guess Who doesn't have a message. It just sets up a whole bunch of stupid so that they can have a funny dance scene at the end. This is another one in our series of podcasts where I loved one of these movies and the other one was fine. I very much enjoyed Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I enjoyed this conversation. I liked what Guess Who's Coming to Dinner brought to the podcast and what it brought to our conversation. And hopefully we'll have more conversations like this with new films. I mean, maybe they'll even be, after this pandemic happens, 
people start making movies again, we could do more. That would be awesome. I would love that. It'd be great. As uncomfortable as some of these conversations that I'm having in my personal life and with you now on this podcast are sometimes, they're so valuable and I think they're so important to have. And so certainly I want to make it clear that you and I are both interested in learning and growing and being better. And so please, like... Please let us know if we're off track about any of this crap. Actually, that's a that's a great thing to put out there, Chris. If you've listened to this podcast and you feel like there's something about your experience that we are discounting by what we are saying or what we have represented, instead of hitting that unsubscribe button, please feel free to reach out to us. Tell us your experience. Explain to us where we're wrong. We genuinely want to learn and be a better ally to everybody on the planet, not just a small net of people that we see on a regular basis. We want everybody to feel that. And I and I think we do that. I want you, if you feel differently, to tell us. I think you and I are definitely both making an effort. I think I'm making a very concerted effort to learn and read and and listen. Us just listening on this podcast wouldn't be wouldn't make for great content because um, <laughs> it would be just a, a lot of silence. But um, and and certainly I don't feel like I am owed an explanation by anyone. It is important to me that I research this on my own. I don't want to be abusing people's willingness to teach because there's a whole wide world of Google for me to to search and find this information on my own. I I do not want to leech from people. I want to be a better ally. I want, this is important to me and I know it's important to to you too, Jay. So we're doing our best and and we're going to make mistakes and that's also part of this Uh, and and it's important to me to learn from those mistakes and to grow and, and to be somebody that I can be proud of. I hope that that part is clear. I just have one last thing to say on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I want you to remember that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was incredible and nominated for Best Picture, but this Sidney Poitier film did not win Best Picture that year because it went to another Sidney Poitier film in the heat of the night, which is an incredible year for Sidney Poitier. But let us not forget... Dr. Doolittle was also nominated for Best Picture this year. Oh, that was the same year? Yes. Dr. Doolittle came out the same year as these two films, pushing the civil rights movement forward, and Dr. Doolittle just trying to drag its ass as back as far as possible with that absolutely horrible, horrible, horrible tribal scene. Ugh. How is that? Oh, my God, dude. That just gave me a headache. That's right. <laughs> this movie is haunting us. If you felt like this this might have been a, a more preachy episode, um, t- to Chris's point, we're just learning as well. We're educating ourselves, and we have a lot of things to say. But don't worry, for every preachy episode, and I will say we hope there will be more, There are still Dr. Doolittles and flippers out there for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, our watch list is varied and diverse, (laughs) not just as far as like racial things or, you know, sexism goes. It's also very diverse as far as like good movies and real, real garbage ones. (laughs) Real, real garbage movies. Next time on We Saw a Thing. 
We're watching three movies for next week's episode. Shaft, Shaft, and Shaft. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcuts Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our show notes for links to our social media and credits. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts.